The following message is from the 2014 IBCD Summer Institute, Making Peace with the Past. Father, we thank you for your son who is the conquering king. We thank you that in him that he has conquered all principalities and powers and even now is exalted over every name that can be named both in this age and in the age to come. And Father, we thank you for the truth of, um, of this warfare, but we also thank you for the truth of our ultimate victory in your Son. And we pray that you'd help us this evening to uh, think about some of these things and maybe reorient ourselves towards them. And Father, we pray that you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, as we um, take up this uh, subject of counseling and spiritual warfare, actually, uh, when Craig contacted me about the uh, conference, he asked if, if I would consider doing something like that. And so I've been thinking about some of these things, um, obviously from a pastoral perspective, um, but then trying to, uh, in a sense, integrate a perspective on spiritual warfare and how it relates to what we do when we're trying to help people in biblical counseling. And uh, the first thing that we need to do, and, and I do this only by necessity, not because I really like to, is I want to point out some disturbing trends and perspectives in this whole area of spiritual warfare and counseling. Uh, it, it actually doesn't take long to see that there is quite a bit of, uh, of insanity uh, out there when it comes to the way that these two uh, aspects uh, integrate with each other. And actually one of the more sane, I think, still provides a uh, perspective for us on how disturbing some of this is. So for instance, uh, Neil Anderson, when I was a student at Biola, Neil Anderson was still a professor at Talbot Seminary and um, we had him teach a number of classes. Of course, his book, uh, Victory Over Darkness and The Bondage Breaker, have both been uh, uh, very, very good sellers, very, very popular books. And there are obviously some good things that Neil Anderson says in those books, but there are, there are three foundational perspectives that he brings out that really, uh, in a sense, kind of um, encapsulate this view of counseling and spiritual warfare. And the first is that uh, Christians no longer possess a sinful nature. Um, now, you, you have to understand how this works in, in counseling when you're trying to deal with people. So, uh, the idea is that Christians no longer possess a sinful nature. So, Anderson says, for instance, in Victory Over Darkness, that we are saints who occasionally sin. Now, um, there's a fundamental problem with, that he says when you identify yourself as a sinner. So if you identify yourself as a sinner, all you're going to do in, from his perspective, is sin. So it's all about identity. I'm a saint who actually sins occasionally, but I sin occasionally not because I have a sinful nature, but from other reasons. Second major uh, emphasis in this perspective or this model is that Christians can be demonized. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about this term demonized, um, but the idea is, is that a 
Christian can be inhabited and controlled by demonic spirits. All right? Now, this obviously radically affects the way that you try to counsel people. Then the third, and that is that self-perception and spiritual authority are the two main ways to deal with spiritual and moral issues. So in, instead of what we would do in terms of biblical counseling, right, we would try to give people a clear course in a, a biblical perspective, biblical diagnosis, try to help them to think biblically and thus act biblically in certain areas. Anderson and those that follow this model actually say the biggest thing has to do with you understanding your identity, so self-perception, and then understanding your spiritual authority, all right? So it's those two things that you really deal with uh, the issues in your life. You know, so somebody comes in, um, you have to be able to discern whether they're demonized. And then once you find out they are, then there is a process by which the demons are expelled. And then the Christian learns his identity in Christ, and then he learns his spiritual authority in Christ. Now, Anderson is actually just one among many. I had a seminary professor at Western Seminary in Portland who, during this time, was, um, would come to class and he would tell us stories for the first 15 or 20 minutes of virtually every class, and he, he specialized in dealing with people with uh, multiple personality disorders. And what he would say is, is that when you found people with this disorder, you actually had to exercise the demon from each personality and then lead each personality to faith in Christ. Okay? So, <clears throat> now, what's that? <laughs> Only if you're Southern Baptist. <laughs> Now, David Powlison, in his uh, excellent book on uh, spiritual warfare, says, Some people really do see a demon behind every bush. Cynthia, a woman I counseled, once cast out demons from her toaster when it failed to work. More seriously, she and her husband, Andrew, had a remarkable and remarkably destructive way of arguing with each other. For the first five minutes, they warmed up with the normal person-to-person -person bickering. But at a central point, when the fighting turned nasty, they shift gears and wield in heavier artillery. They would bind, rebuke, and attempt to cast out the demons of anger, pride, self-righteousness from each other. So in Cynthia's words, I saw the demon looking out of his eyes glittering and murmuring murderous threats. So I said, demon of anger, I bind you in the power of Jesus' name, and then I claim the power of Jesus' blood as my cover from all demonic assault coming through my husband. The result? Not only did Cynthia and Andrew reinforce their hostility, no kidding, they trampled the name of Christ through the mud of their superstition, hostility, fear, and confusion. Needless to say, the real devil, who aims to dishonor God and conform us to his evil ways, could only be pleased at the ensuing personal and interpersonal wreckage. Now, as we think about this issue of counseling and spiritual warfare, I want to suggest to you that there are uh, six crucial issues. There's probably a lot more, obviously. Uh, but the first is this, is can a Christian 
be demonized. Now, in your notes, you should have demon-possessed in parentheses. Um, this is not a shameless promotion of uh, my book on spiritual warfare, but we have an appendix on can a Christian be demon-possessed, all right? So I'm not going to have time to go into all of this. Let me just give you the short answer, no, all right? Now, um, here, here's, here's the problem is that when you read the literature that falls in line with the perspective that I was unfolding at the beginning with Neil Anderson, for instance, they would say, well, we're not saying Christians can be demon-possessed. We're saying Christians can be demonized. Well, th this is a, actually a classic example of a difference without a distinction. Because in the Bible, the term that we have traditionally translated in virtually every single English translation, demon-possessed, is just the, the verb demonized. And in fact, you can go through, you can take a lexicon, you can look at this in, in, in a Greek text, and you can go through and you can see that there is no fundamental distinction between what we classically have identified as demon possession and what these modern practitioners call being demonized. Because for them, a demonized is you're inhabited and unduly influenced by a demon. Well, classically, you know what we call that? Demon possession, all right? So can a Christian actually be demonized or demon possessed? And I would say no. And I would say no for a number of reasons. I have a number of texts there for you. And um, basically my argument based on these texts is that when the Lord Jesus actually comes into our life through faith by the power of the Spirit, by, by us responding to the gospel, that the strong man has been bound, Matthew chapter 12, right? And his property has been plundered. That's, that, that's the whole teaching of Matthew 12. We are no longer under the dominion of darkness. We've actually been delivered. So the prince of this world, John 12, 31, has been overthrown. And so we have been delivered from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. One of the things that sometimes we end up missing when we are... Um, really heavily focused on justification, and I'm totally in favor of being very focused on justification, but sometimes we end up neglecting other dimensions of the saving work of Christ, one of which is to deliver us from the dominion and the power of Satan. Now, we see that through a number of passages, but I want you to look at, um, look at two with me in particular. Um, Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, we'll start in verse 13, Paul says, 
When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When He disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. In other words, part of the aspect of our Lord's saving work Work is a victorious triumph over the powers of darkness through the cross. Now this is what the writer to the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, so that Jesus Christ himself takes on flesh and blood and does what? Through death destroys the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And so we see this, the work of our Lord Jesus comes to us, delivers us from that dominion and that authority. So now, are we actually indwelt by a spirit? And the answer is yes, but by the Holy Spirit. We are now the temple of the living God. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 16, that you don't have Belial cohabitating with the Spirit of God. All right? So, a, a child of God cannot be demon-possessed. Now, the second crucial issue is the danger of overemphasizing the demonic. All right? And th this really is problematic when you think about it for a number of reasons. First of all, it ends up undermining the triumphant work of, of Christ over Satan as a real deliverance. Okay? So when, when certain people, uh, whether in a counseling context or some sort of deliverance ministry type thing, when they are so emphasizing the demonic, typically what ends up happening is that Christ's triumph over the devil and his minions on the cross and through the resurrection ends up being undermined. Okay? So Samuel Bolton, an old Puritan, said, Christ has rested us and delivered us from Satan's hands. We were prisoners to Satan in his chains, and Christ has brought us deliverance. Also, when the demonic is overemphasized, it ends up minimizing the work of salvation. When we think about the work of Christ in bringing us salvation, when we think of regeneration, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, when we think about what happens to us in conversion, what happens to us in justification, what happens to us in reconciliation, what happens to us in adoption, we realize that this is a radical work. This is a transformative work. It's not just a forensic work, a legal work. It is a transformative work. And when we so emphasize the work of the devil, we end up minimizing what God actually has done for us through His Spirit and through His grace. Next, it also misdirects us away from Satan's chief work, which is lies, deception, and sin, and thus away from the real solutions which are found in God's Word. So what I'm saying is, is that when the demonic is so emphasized as, you know, my toaster doesn't work, I mean, that's, that's a, like a silly example, but the extremity of that actually demonstrates a perspective that says everything that goes wrong is the devil's fault. And everything that's wrong in my life is the devil's fault. Well, when we start to do that, when we start to think that way, we're actually being misdirected away from the way Satan typically works. 
which is by lying, deceiving, and alluring us into sin through temptation. And therefore, if we are misdirected from Satan's real attacks, we're actually misdirected away from the real remedy, which is God's holy word. Also, and this should be obvious to us, when we overemphasize the demonic, it subtly shifts the responsibility away from us to another entity. Okay? So, one of the reasons why, any of you from Grace Bible Church know Jason Ching? Okay, yeah, some of you know Jason. One of the reasons we brought Jason on is because he fills the generational gap, because all of my illustrations obviously go back to the 70s and 80s. Jason brings us into the 21st century. So, um, I remember the Flip Wilson show. Okay? Jason would not even know what I was talking about, all right? But I remember the Flip Wilson show and remember Geraldine, okay? And what was, what was, her, what was her byline? The devil. the devil made me do it. And so we, we actually can so emphasize the demonic that we never end up taking responsibility for anything because it's now just shifted away to demonic spirits that are harassing me or, you know, demonizing me or whatever. Now, the question is, can Satan exploit the weaknesses of our flesh? And the answer is, absolutely. Can he tempt us and ensnare us? And the answer is, absolutely. But where does the Bible put the ultimate responsibility for our sins? James 1, 14 to 15, it doesn't fall on God, it falls on us. Right? And so overemphasizing the demonic can actually be a very subtle way of us actually shifting the blame to the devil. Number three, there are the dangers of minimizing the demonic. Now, the theological tradition that I am in, I would say that this is probably our tendency, is to actually minimize the demonic. Um, typically, um, Reformed people have not been in too much danger of overemphasizing the demonic. We typically are in danger of minimizing the demonic, and that is dangerous as well. Think about our Lord Jesus in teaching us the Lord's Prayer, and you have just a handful of petitions in the Lord's Prayer. He gives us as a model prayer, right? Think of those final two petitions. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The evil one. Yeah, yeah. I think that's exactly how we should understand Matthew 6.13. Deliver us from the evil one. So let me just ask this as a simple question. If Jesus gives us, in a sense, a summary of a model prayer of how our prayer should be directed, and he teaches us that out of, out of the six basic petitions that he teaches, that one of those is to deliver us from the evil one, does that not indicate that this is a serious problem for us as the children of God? Okay? And so we have a number of texts um, that should remind us of how important this is. You remember Peter? I, I love this passage because Peter was so filled with self-confidence, right? You're going to deny me. Lord, you know what? <laughs> These yahoos might deny you. I mean, I believe that about them, but I would never deny you. Absolutely filled with self-confidence, thought he was much stronger than he really was. And it's in Luke's gospel that we actually have, in Luke 22, 31 to 34, 
Jesus says, Simon, Simon, which is significant in and of itself, is it not? Okay. So almost like old man, old man, instead of Peter, Peter, new man, new man. Right? Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Right? Wow. Sift you like wheat? Whenever I think of that passage, I always remember my grandmother. They lived out in the country outside of um, Yuba City, Marysville, out by the Feather River. And, and uh, my grandmother used to have this thing, and she would, um, and, and you'd have a handle here, and she would wind it up here, and she would have, make flour, right? And there would be this flour that come out of the bottom. And I would think to myself, you know, that's, you can just buy it in a bag, you know? <laughs> But what was the, what was the, you know, when, when you're sifting wheat, you're, you're doing what? You're separating, right? You're separating the, actually the kernel of wheat from the chaff. There's a separation. Satan actually has, um, has requested permission to take Peter and, as it were, separate him from his faith. I think that's the picture, right? And then, of course, Jesus, in wonderful words of comfort, but I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. That's why I think that the sifting is to separate him from his faith so your faith would not fail. And when you return, <laughs> when you return, go and strengthen your brothers. So does that leave us with an indication that Satan is a real enemy? Absolutely. So we can't minimize it. Think of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 where um, there was obviously this ringleader who had caused Paul some serious problems in his hasty visit and had humiliated Paul publicly. Um, Paul had encouraged him to put him under discipline. Paul says that the, the uh, punishment inflicted by the majority has basically done its work, and now you need to make sure that you forgive him, lest he be burdened with excessive sorrow. And then he says, for we're not ignorant of Satan's schemes. So... How could Satan work in a local church? Well, through unforgiveness, right? So, you know, we are so um, conditioned by the movies and the books that sometimes we forget the subtlety of Satan simply working through unforgiveness in a church body, okay? We are not ignorant of his schemes, says Paul. There are, of course, a number of texts here, but think also of, um, of Ephesians 4, 26, 27. We know this. We use it in counseling all the time, right? So be angry and sin not, and don't let the sun go down on your anger and give the devil a foothold, a tapas, a place to stand, all right? To me, that's, that is a serious warning. Do you actually want to give Satan a foothold, a place to stand in your life? And the answer is no. Of course, the classic passage is Ephesians 6, 10 to 13. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Uh, think about what Paul says to the Thessalonians. Um, how long was Paul in Thessalonica? He was there for three Sabbath days, right? Okay. So, basically roughly three weeks. He has to leave because of persecution. These baby Christians in Thessalonica are being persecuted. Paul actually says, I think the reference should actually be 1 Thessalonians 3, and that is, when we could stand it no longer, I had to send Timothy to find out about your faith, lest the tempter had tempted you and our labor was in vain. 
Wow! That's pretty significant. Paul says, we were, we were so concerned about what was going to happen once we left that I had to send Timothy to get a report lest the tempter had tempted you and our labor had been in vain. Okay. Well, there are obviously other passages. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, um, be on guard, our enemy, the devil, roams around like a roaring lion seeking to lick somebody, right? Is it lick? No. It's devour somebody, all right? To devour. And then what does Peter say? But stand firm in faith, right? Um, of course, James, I wonder if we've considered this very often. When James talks about the wisdom which is from below, how does he describe it? Well, it's full of envy and jealousy and strife and contention, but and then he, he actually says it's demonic. It's demonic, all right? Uh, of course, resist the devil. <laughs> Do you think that we'd have biblical injunction to resist the devil if this was not a serious problem, right? So there is a huge danger of actually minimizing Satan and the demonic and spiritual warfare. So the next crucial issue is how can I know when I or counselee is under demonic attack? So as a result of, um, of putting this book out, we, uh, Rob Ventura and I, the co-author, get opportunities to do interviews. And I would say that there's a handful of questions that we get asked repeatedly in the interviews. And this is one of them. How do you know when somebody is under demonic attack? Right? Crucial issue, right? You're going to be counseling somebody. You have somebody sitting there and you're talking to them. How do you know they're under demonic attack? Well, here's, here's, our, here's our problem is that too often we're looking for something sensational. Okay? You know, well, their head turns 360 degrees. Of course they're under demonic attack. They threw up green stuff all over me. Of course they're under demonic attack. Well, we have to understand we don't, we don't deny the sensational expressions of the supernatural, all right? And from time to time, you see things that freak you out, okay? But understand this. Typically, ordinarily, demonic attack is pretty ordinary, and so you think, just think through this day. Here you are surrounded by all these sanctified people and, um, you know, listening to teaching and, and you're surrounded by all these good books and you've got all these IBCD people. And I mean, this is as close to heaven as it gets, right? And um, did you experience demonic attack today? Yeah, probably. Probably. Uh, so what is Satan trying to do in our lives? Well, first of all, he's trying to destroy our faith. Okay? He's trying to destroy our faith. And so um, this young man in our church um, professes faith in Christ a couple years ago. Seemed like a, just an incredibly radical conversion. Uh, just as faithful as could be, faithful as could be. And then and I didn't see him for a number of weeks. 
And so I contacted him and I said, hey, I haven't seen you for a while. And I knew some other guys in our church had contacted him. And I said, you know, where have you been? Well, I've been sick and then we had inventory and I had to work. And of course, you know, all those, you, you kind of get this idea that, you know, that this, he's not telling me everything. Can we get together? Well, I had heard that he got engaged. And he didn't tell me. And as we sat down, um, I thought, you know, we can, we can do this like the long, arduous, hard way, or we can just do this like the easy way. And um, after he said, you know, well, I've been sick and this and that, I said, well, um, are you sleeping with your girlfriend? He put his head down. He says, yeah. So I, what I do, I start going through all the passages that warn about fornication, right? And at the end, I said, listen, you have to understand that you are either a Christian or a fornicator, but you can't be both, okay? So what's going to happen when you go and tell her that your loyalty rests with Christ and that, you, that, you're, that you're repenting of this sexual sin? He says, I don't know that I can do that. I said, you have to do that. You have to do that. This is not, this is not optional. Okay? There's, there are too many warnings that tell us this is not optional. So please consider what's at stake. Do you know what was happening right then and there? It was a battle for his soul. Right? A battle for his soul. So I told him, I said, you know, you, I know you feel put on the spot. But I'm going to tell you I'm putting you on the spot because I love you and your soul's at stake. All right? And so he was unwilling to continue the conversation. I said, I'm going to call you at the end of the week. I called him at the end of the week. I said, have you thought about it? You prayed about it? Yeah. And I, I can't do what you've asked me to do. I said, make no mistake about it. It's not me asking you to do anything. Mm -hmm. Right? 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 8, this is, this is God telling you what you're supposed to do. And if you reject this, you're rejecting God who gives you the Holy Spirit. There, there, there was a battle. This man now has walked away from his Christian faith. Okay? That is one of Satan's primary goals. is to get, And it doesn't matter whether it's through sexual immorality or through self-righteousness. His goal is to actually destroy our faith. Now, how can he do that? He can do that through a number of different ways. He can attack our thinking so that we're thinking like the world. This is why what we do in biblical counseling is so absolutely critical. And so here's Peter who's all puffed up because he thinks he's the first pope now because Jesus says, you're Peter and on this rock I'm going to build my church. And he's like, well, you know what? As the pontiff, uh, you know, I have a few things to say to you, Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm going up to Jerusalem and I'm going to be handed over and I'm going to be crucified. And he says, no way. No way. And Jesus looks at him. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Huh, I thought he was the first pope. Now he's Satan. <laughs> so the first pope has become the Antichrist right there on the spot. Right? Get behind me, Satan. Does anybody remember why he says, get behind me, Satan? For you are thinking the thoughts of men rather than God. Wow. 
when Satan can actually get us to start thinking like the world, when we start thinking like that, guess what, guess what follows so quickly? We start acting like that. And so, and so conform to this world, what's the remedy? Transform by the renewing of your mind. So Satan can allure us into sin and establish a foothold. Remember when Paul says, when husbands and wives decide for a season to abstain from intimacy, what does he then say? He says, well, then come back together so that lest you be tempted by Satan, right? So Satan actually can allure us with sin and temptation. He can assail us with bitterness and unforgiveness. I have the text there, not only the 2 Corinthians 2 passage, but the James 3 passage, that jealousy, that bitterness, that envy. That is a manifestation of the work of the devil, all right? So all that to say that most of the time, demonic attacks are not nearly as sensational as, as some would make us believe. But most of the time, not always, but most of the time, those attacks come through the means of our thinking, our affections, our actions. Think about the person who, um, who has sustained a hurt or a wound from somebody else. And instead of at that moment, at that moment where they make a decision, I mean, am I going to deal with this biblically? Or am I going to wallow in self-pity? Right? So they, they make the decision, for whatever reason, to wallow in self-pity. What, what ends up happening in those cases? Does that person typically get better or worse? Well, they get worse because they get more and more focused on themselves. Why? Because now their thinking is revolving in an unbiblical way about themselves and about this hurt. And, and just like Steve was talking about, this is that, that fourth bucket, right? So uh, guilty and, or maybe not guilty, maybe innocent, but then not responding well. And you can find yourself in a vortex of unbiblical thinking, which ends up playing right in to the devil's hands. And so this is serious, serious business. Number five, an integrated biblical worldview on spiritual warfare. All of life is spiritual warfare. Okay? All of it. When you wake up in the morning, you're in a battle. Whether you know it or not, when you wake up in the morning, you're in a battle. Okay? And so Ephesians 6, 10 to 20 is not just a once in a while reality in our life. It is an ever-present reality in our life. And so as a result, we have to realize that all the counseling that we do is in essence spiritual warfare. All right? We are combating lies with the truth. We're combating, as it were, the powers of darkness with God's light. There is warfare that goes on. Every single time somebody sits down, whether it's a formal session or informal, every single time there is a battle that's going on. There is a battle that's led up to that battle. And so what are the foundations for understanding spiritual warfare and counseling? I want to I just say two things about this. First, when, when we sit down with people and we're trying to help people, we need to remember, we ourselves need to remind ourselves and our counselees that Christ himself is the exalted, reigning, redeemer, and king. Okay? We, 
we are not in some sort of dualistic universe where we've got God on one side and Satan on the other and they're just, you know, battling it out. I heard uh, one time some old Southern Baptist preacher, sorry to pick on Southern Baptist, but, and uh, he goes, I got election all figured out. So God cast his vote for you. Satan cast his vote for you. Now you got to decide, now you make the deciding vote. Okay? And then some other old southern preacher says, that ain't right at all. Because first of all, Satan is a felon and he can't vote. <laughs> and this election took place before the foundation of the world and you were too young to vote. So the only vote that matters is God's. Right? And so when, we, when we're talking to people, you know, it's, it's easy, and, and people drift into this very easily, right, in, in, in our culture, where, you know, because of, you know, George Lucas, let's blame him, and uh, yin and yang, and, you know, the, the force and darkness and light and all this, we sometimes fall into this dualistic perspective that is so fundamentally wrong. Luther used to say, the devil is God's devil. So, when we talk to people, we need to remember that not only are we ambassadors, but we're representing and standing in the power of Christ himself, who is the reigning king and redeemer. Now, when we think about this, um, I, I love Ephesians because Ephesians not only gives us the classic text regarding spiritual warfare, but there's a context to Ephesians that actually helps us immensely when we think about this. So, Paul goes to Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, right? As Paul goes to Ephesus, this, this city is like the new age capital of the ancient world, all right? People are involved in spiritism, they're involved in the occult, they, in, in fact, what we, what we know from archaeology is, um, for instance, what's called the Ephesia Grammata, which would be little amulets that were names, what well, we would just identify as demons, they'd identify them as deities, little amulets that were worn around the neck. Does any of this sound familiar? And uh, when, when you needed uh, the blessing of the gods, you would actually then name the name that was on your amulet. All right. So this city was was immersed in the occult. It was immersed in this um, uh, spiritual realities were very very real to the Ephesians. All right. So think about. I've been to Zambia, for instance, and there is a there is an awareness of the powers of darkness that we don't see in the West. Well, that's because they have shamans and witch doctors in every village, all right? These things, and so sensational demonstrations of, of demonic possession and all this is very real in most parts of the world. We are somewhat sanitized from it, not because it's not real, but because Satan doesn't need to do it here, right? I read C.S. Lewis and screw tape letters. Hey, you know what? If, if I can get people to think I'm a myth, that's just as good. Right? Not to say it doesn't happen, but I'm just saying that compared to places like, you know, Haiti and Jamaica and Africa and other places. And so that, that's Ephesus in the first century. So what happens is the gospel comes through Paul with tremendous power. So what do they do when they're converted? 
You remember this? They take all of their occultic books and all of their uh, paraphernalia, and it's worth millions of dollars, and they, they burn it. Okay? And then, of course, follows the Pauline uh, cycle of ministry. Preach the gospel, start a riot, go to the next town. Okay? Um, so Ephesus is the center for Diana worship or Artemis worship. And so you remember these people, your silversmiths and your artisans are saying, you know what? These people have just bitten into our prophets. With an F, of course, our prophets. Because now nobody's going to be buying our little statues anymore. Nobody's going to be buying our little amulets anymore. And so then they, of course, caused this big, huge riot. And so that's the background to what Paul writes in Ephesus. So take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians, not chapter 6, but chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Now look at this. Verse 18. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power critical word in Ephesians, of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might. Do these words sound familiar to you? They're going to be echoed again where? In chapter 6. All right. So these are in accordance with the working of his, the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in heavenly places. And so what Paul's saying is, you know, God has demonstrated His awesome power. Does God demonstrate His power when He says, let there be light and there's light? Oh my goodness. We just started Genesis and it's just absolutely glorious to think that everything comes into existence by the power of God's spoken word, right? So God is a God of unlimited, awesome, raw power. And Paul says, you really want to see God's power? When he raised his son up from the dead and then ascend, raised him up into heaven and seated him at his right hand. That's power. That's power, Ephesians. That's power, people who used to live in fear of the powers? You want real power? Look at Christ. And no notice what Paul then says. He's been seated at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. By the way, those four terms do not, are not referring to political or governmental power. They are referring to spiritual powers. Okay? So Jesus has been exalted far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion and every name that is named. Think of the Ephesia Grammata, naming the names of the gods for protection, for blessing, for prosperity. Paul says, you know what? He doesn't say, don't believe that stuff. It's not real. What he says is, Jesus is more powerful than any name that can be named. And then notice the designation here, not only in this age, 
but in the age to come. In other words, because of the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is absolutely no rival among the demonic powers. Okay? No rivals. Wow. When you stop and think about the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in, this right here is the, is the place where we stand. We stand in the resurrected, ascended, exalted Christ who has been given power that is above all power. There's no one that even comes close, right? So, when Paul is dealing then with the Ephesians, and remember, you know, we talk this whole weekend about dealing with the past. If, if you had a past that was rooted, grounded, and shaped and governed by the idea of spirits, the need for protection, blessing, you would live in fear if you abandoned them, right? Remember years ago, I went to um, uh, Columbia River Correctional Institution every Thursday night while I was in seminary and, and I'd preach and uh, it was in the drug and alcohol unit and there's about 40, 50 guys that would come and uh, one night a couple of the guys came to me and they said, Hey, you know, this guy, and I forget his name now, he is a bona fide Satan worshiper. And he's going to come to service tonight. And so you know what I did? I changed my message right on the spot. Okay? Because I'm thinking, I know what this guy needs. And so I preached Colossians 1.13, that God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And so I preached that passage, and man, I just preached it with all of my might. And he just sat in the back row, arms crossed, just a blank stare right through me. And I'm thinking, what's wrong with this guy? He's completely unmoved. He gets up, stares me down, and then walks out. So then the next week when I went back, I thought, you know what? If, he sh if he's there, I'm just going to preach what I was going to preach when I didn't know he was going to come. And that was Psalm 32 and the blessedness of being forgiven. <laughs> you know, see what happens when we think that we're smarter than God, right? <laughs> so, it was really just, I couldn't believe it. So I, I start preaching, and he's there, and I start preaching on being forgiven and not having your sin imputed to you, right? Having your sin covered. And uh, he starts weeping, I mean profusely. And... Um, after I was done preaching, a couple of the guys kind of surrounded him and they brought him up and, and I'll never forget, he says to me, I really want to give my life to Christ. But I made a pact with the devil. I made an oath and I can't break it. I said, yes, you can. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. So you don't need to be afraid. There is one who has bound the strong man. His name's Jesus. Every, 
in the Gospels, every single exorcism that Jesus performs is a demonstration that the kingdom of God is more powerful than the kingdom of darkness. And that he comes in full authority of God's kingdom. And so you don't need to be afraid. The guy gave his life to the Lord and was a wonderful, vibrant part of that little church in the drug and alcohol unit for as long as he was there. But I'll never forget, I'm afraid. I can't. And so, so as Paul's dealing with these people that were immersed in the occult, he has to remind them, listen, the one that you've put your faith and trust in, he's the one who is the most powerful one of all. And therefore, he is the one who has delivered you. He is the one who has actually disarmed the principalities and powers. It is through the cross that he's actually made peace with his blood. I mean, when you think about what Jesus has accomplished, Satan is no match for it whatsoever. And so we rightly emphasize that Christ is Christus victor and our union with him actually secures our victory. And so if I am united to the one who has overcome all principalities and powers, then his victory is my victory. Just as we preach and teach rightfully so from uh, uh, Romans 6, Christ's death, we're in union with him, Christ's death is what? Our death. Christ's burial, our burial. Christ's resurrection, our resurrection. So we're raised with him to walk in newness of life. Well, just as sure as that is true, Ephesians 2, 7, we have been seated with Christ where? In the heavenly places, which means not only is his death my death and his resurrection my resurrection, but his victory is my victory. And we need to tell people this, and we need to remind them of this. And so, as Paul then proceeds through the book of Ephesians, he gets to the armor of God in 6, 10 to 20. And what we need to realize is that the armor of God is wholly and completely sufficient for every child of God who lives the Christian life. Now, you know what's interesting to me is in that background with the Ephesians, when Paul gets to this classic text, I mean, really, there is no more extensive text on spiritual warfare than what you have in Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, right? You know what's interesting to me is he never once says, bind the devil. He never once says, identify territorial spirits. He never once says, go on a prayer walk and get a vision of what spirits are, uh, you know, in control. You know, so we live in, Vic and I live in Nevada and Suzanne, and, uh, you know, so we're under the dominion of gambling demons, I guess, right? Well, you understand that there's none of that in the, in the classic text that deals with spiritual warfare. As we read it, we have to understand a few things. First... Putting on the armor of God is nothing less than clothing yourself with Christ himself. Okay? The, the, sometimes we kind of miss that. Who is the divine warrior, Isaiah 57, who wears the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation? It's Christ himself. 
So as, you're, as you think about wearing the armor of God, you're not just, in a sense, kind of doing this little tactical thing. You're actually putting on Christ himself who has overcome all principalities and powers. The armor also consists, uh, or the armor is what we might call body part specific, right? Think about this for yourself. Think about it for your counselees. It's very, very helpful. And so when you think about the helmet of what? Salvation. What does a helmet do? <laughs> it protects your noggin, right? What's the picture? I put salvation on over my head. In other words, salvation then is not only protection, but it governs my thinking, right? If you're going to battle principalities and powers in this life, you need to think properly about what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. How detrimental is it to you spiritually to think that salvation is maybe 90% God and 10% you? You know what? That's one for the devil right there, right? Okay? Because then that puts me on a performance track, which I can never be good enough. And then I'm not actually resting in Christ at all. I'm actually just trying to gain God's approval. Well, guess what? Satan then has a foothold. Helmet of salvation. Breastplate of righteousness. What, what, what does the breastplate do? The breastplate guards my vital organs. Okay? So think of it this way. The righteousness of God actually is designed to protect, as it were, my heart. Okay? My kidneys, my liver, my vitals. All right? Why is that important? Well, because those organs often in Scripture are used to designate the center of our affections. What is it that can actually help guard my affections understanding the righteousness that has been given to me as a free gift? On and on. Shield of faith. To do what? To extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. The sword of the spirit. The only offensive weapon listed in the armor. And so what is, what is the image? I'm fighting the good fight of faith. Satan's fiery darts come at me in the form of lies. By the way, every temptation is a lie. You understand that? Every temptation is a lie. No temptation ever delivers what it promises. Have you, have you ever given in to temptation and said, you know what, that was totally worth it? No, because it's false advertising always, because that's the way the devil designs it. And so the fiery darts come in, and how in the world do you actually extinguish the fiery darts of the devil with a shield that's called faith, which means I'm trusting in God's promises, and I am extinguishing the lies of the enemy, and then I'm wielding the sword of the Spirit, which means I learn how to use the word in warfare. All right? There's a whole bunch of stuff we could say about that, but we just simply don't have the time. So in light of Christ's resurrection, ascension, exaltation, we absolutely lack nothing for the daily battle. Every, every single child of God that comes in to you to talk about their problems, to talk about their sins, to talk about their hurts, you have to understand that they are not lacking anything. They've been given all things for life and godliness. They possess every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. And the armor, which is nothing less than the fullness of Christ himself, is completely theirs. So, 
Is that relevant when you're sitting down with somebody? You better believe it. You better believe it. So let me just go over this in like 60 seconds. Before the session, obviously, how many of you pray before you know you're going to meet with somebody? <laughs> yeah, well, let me just say one thing about this is that verses 18 to 20 focus on prayer. And what's interesting is prayer is a part of the armor, but there's no metaphor for the armor for prayer. It's just prayer. Okay? It's just prayer. Prayer is actually one of the most effective aspects of this warfare. And so as you know you're going to meet with somebody, you have to realize that you know they, they, may be, they may be duped by the devil. They may be thinking thoughts that have been insinuated by the devil. They may be thinking, I've sinned in such a way that, that, that God can never forgive me. They may be buying into all kinds of lies. You actually can be an instrument of truth that brings deliverance for, for them. And so, as the bondservant of the Lord, you're not to be quarrelsome or contentious, but you're to be patient with all, instructing. If perchance God will give them deliverance, freedom from the snares of the devil. All right? So, you want to be praying beforehand. What about during the session? Is spiritual warfare going on during the session? Yes. Yeah. Now, is, are you always consciously aware of the depth of warfare in the same way? And the answer is no. There are some times when you are keenly aware of it. Okay? What I'm suggesting is that we should always be aware that there's warfare going on. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. There is something at stake. And so one of the things that, that we need to do is we need to help the counselee actually see Satan's designs and what's going on in their life. Right? We need to let them see Satan's designs of what's going on in... <clears throat> so they come in and they think they've got terrible marriage problems. And they may have really bad marriage problems. But does this have any relevance and significance to their marriage problems? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Your enemy is not your husband. Your enemy is not your wife. You have an enemy and it's not flesh and blood. And so we help our counselees see that the, 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 the Satan's designs, how this sin or this struggle has the ultimate um, goal of the destruction of your faith. John Owen has this great section. Uh, if, if sin could have its full course with us. Every doubt would become atheism. Uh, every anger would be, every uh, thought of anger would become murder. And he actually goes through this big list of just seeing what would happen if sin was just completely unleashed in our lives. We need to let people see that Satan actually has a goal here. And that's what I was told that young man. You have to understand that Satan's design right now is to destroy your faith. And you know how he's doing it? By making sex look better than Christ. It's a lie. It's a lie. Help the counselee see the Father's design. Does the Father have a design in their struggle? Does He have a design in what they're going through? You better believe it. Help them to see it. Help them to see it. And then help the counselee apply the armor. Teach them how to fight the good fight. Isn't that one of the things that biblical counselors have, have been known for is actually putting the scripture into the hands of those that they're trying to help in a practical way so that they can in turn fight the good fight, right? 
if they leave and they've got two or three scriptures, and I'm not talking about some superficial, you know, here, memorize these verses and call me in the morning kind of thing, right? We, we, all, we all despise that kind of approach, but actually helping them grab hold of the truth of God and to be laid hold of the power of God's truth and to go out equipped with the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith, that, that's a success. That's a success. And so I would submit to you that a biblically balanced view of spiritual warfare actually will serve our counseling for the good of our counselees and for the glory of our ascended reigning king. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the sufficiency of your word Lord, where would, where would we be if we didn't have a sufficient Bible? We thank you that you've not left us to our own thoughts, our own devices, our own superstitions, but you've given us a sure word. And Father, we pray that you would help us to be skillful in using it. And we pray also, Father, that you would remind us day by day that we're in a battle. We ourselves need to fight it, and we ourselves need to help others fight it. We pray that you would help us to stand shoulder to shoulder with brothers and sisters in this battle and remind us, Lord, that the war has already been won. Praise the Savior. Father, thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Copyright 2014, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www dot ibcd dot org